0: There are so many different things that people are working on, so many different treatments, and there's a lot of stuff that has potential. But if you want to do something right now that could help the way you're aging and extend your lifespan, there's nothing better that you can do other than just eat right and exercise.
1: Human OS.
0: Learn. Master. Achieve.
1: Neil Copes, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thanks for taking some time to join us. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: All right. I actually got my start in what I'm doing about 12 years ago when me and a very close friend of mine were having a conversation essentially about what we wanted to do in our lives and we came to the conclusion that the thing that we wanted to do the most in our lives was essentially to extend our lives Mm -hmm. we thought that that would probably be the most important thing that we could work on with our time
1: totally and you have more time to figure out what you want to do with your life
0: (laughs) well that was the thing we realized that we didn't have enough time to do potentially everything that we wanted to do so We thought life extension is probably the most important thing that we could focus our efforts on. And we thought, okay, that's probably the type of thing that we might need PhDs for. And we literally went out immediately upon that decision. And enrolled at the University of South Florida. We got our bachelor's degrees at USF. We went through the graduate program at USF. We got our PhDs. It took me 10 years total from start to finish. And that has been really my main focus the entire time, the whole way through. I've spent my time studying aging in general, specifically human aging. And we got our degrees after we graduated. We thought, okay, well, we could go on and we could be postdoctoral researchers. And essentially, the experience of being a postdoctoral researcher is just sort of extension of graduate school. Mm-hmm. Generally, the path at that point is you take another five to seven years working as a postdoc in someone else's lab, doing someone else's research. And then if you're lucky, maybe get a university research job as a professor, mm-hmm. maybe another seven years of doing a research for the point of publishing papers in the hopes of getting tenure. We thought, okay, well, that's a very long track with a lot of uncertainty in it. Mm -hmm. And so we decided at that point that maybe the better thing to do would be actually to just teach and then see if we could open up a business that would possibly let us do type of research that we're interested in doing.
1: I applaud you for sticking with it and (laughs) being where you are. Thank you.
0: I think so much of my life now has been spent focused on the fact that I am aging, it really solidifies in my mind how little time I potentially have. And so anytime I see a track in front of me that, okay, well, I can get maybe to where I want to go possibly in say another seven or eight years, or I could just do what I can to sort of jump into it now, then that sort of motivation to just jump into it now.
1: The sooner people gain an appreciation and interest in it, the better able they are to manipulate some of the factors that are going to create more clear and present signs of aging, doing that sort of preventative daily maintenance that keep your body in good fit shape longer until some of the more powerful interventions are created that can really extend lifespan.
0: Exactly, because the best thing we have now actually is just health, since there aren't yet available any dramatic or radical life extension techniques. Just just keeping yourself alive and healthy and going until there is a radical life extension technique is really the best strategy for just a daily life.
1: It's really possible to stay young with effort.
0: It is. And right out of high school, I got a job working as a framing carpenter. Building houses. And the man who I started working for was 75 years old at the time that he hired me. Mm-hmm. And at 75, he worked just as hard as me and the other people in the crew who were like late teens, early 20s, completely ripped, didn't have any gray hair. Uh, wow. As a matter of fact, I have to say, when I first started, he was in far better shape than I was. <laughs> I think I was, I was 18 and he was 75.
1: Wow. <laughs> How do I be like that person is when
0: I'm that age? Yeah, how do I still go out and work like I'm 20 years old when I'm 75?
1: Tell me about the range of subject matters that you are interested in.
0: Ooh, so the thing with studying aging is that you end up studying just sort of everything in biology in general, because there's still no one clear explanation for exactly what is going on in the human body as we age. As a matter of fact, there are still several hundred currently seriously discussed theories of human aging. So when you start talking about human aging, it is everything from studying the buildup of things like advanced glycation end products in the extracellular matrix around cells. It is studying the way gene expression changes over the course of a person's life. It's studying the way your hormones essentially go out of balance as you get older. It's called hormonal dyscrasia. So you really have to be sort of an expert in the biochemistry aspect of it, the genetics aspect of it. The hormonal developmental is a little bit of everything.
1: When Aubrey de Grey was on the show, I asked them the question, do you think that we will see incremental benefits as we make significant advances in one of these subjects and then synergistic advancement when we are able to address them all together?
0: That's very true. With biology, you have to remember that every single thing is connected. It's like a carpet or a tapestry. You can't just pull on one thread without pulling on everything else. Right. And so that's one of the problems even with just taking any type of prescription drug. It's very hard, if not just impossible, for a drug to just do one single thing in the human body. Mm-hmm. Anytime you go in and you try to target one single thing in the human body, you always end up affecting a multitude of things, oftentimes completely in unpredictable ways. That's
1: why I really like the work that Dale Bredesen is doing in Alzheimer's disease. He feels that there will never be a drug that satisfactorily addresses Alzheimer's disease because there's so many different lifestyle influences that are actually affecting its progression and we get much better outcomes when we can say, how do we get people on the right diet with the right stress management yeah. program, right supplementation, and you go down the list and you get them doing as many things right in as many categories that matter as possible. Yeah. I think that that's how we should probably approach all aspects of health and disease.
0: Oh, it probably is. Yeah, be healthy to begin with, and that's going to put you in a much better position overall.
1: So tell me about some of the areas that you are working on specifically.
0: So currently the primary area that I'm working on is we are developing tests for average consumers to just sort of send in a saliva sample or like a buccal cell swab of the cheek and gum area. And what we can do currently is we can take that sample and we can isolate DNA from the sample and we can go in and examine the epigenetics of the DNA.
1: Okay, so explain to the listener what epigenetics means.
0: Mm. So, you have your regular genetics, which are genes that are heritable. They can be passed on from one cell to another or one generation to another. And then you have what is considered epigenetics. These are essentially heritable modifications to genetics to your genes that can be passed on from cell to cell or person to person, potentially. These are things like chemical modifications to the DNA itself, specifically chemical modification called methylation, Mm -hmm. which essentially can occur all over the genome. But when it is occurring in the promoter region before a gene, it can change the way that gene is expressed. Right. You also have things that fall under the category of epigenetics, at least depending on exactly how you define the term, such as chemical modifications to what are called histones, which are proteins that DNA is normally wrapped around inside the nucleus. Mm -hmm. And as you make modifications to the histones, the DNA will either wrap around more tightly or more loosely, and that can change the way genes are turned on or turned off, essentially.
1: Okay, so you have these genes in your body, but they might be silenced or they might be active because of the way that this epigenetic functioning is influencing the transcription of the genes. Yes,
0: and as a matter of fact, one way that this really strongly manifests itself is when you think about the fact that every cell in your body has all of the same genes so all of the same dna every cell but you have all of these different cell types that do different roles in the body and the way say that a cell knows how to be a skin cell as opposed to maybe being a bone cell or being, say, a liver cell, is essentially the epigenetics of the cell. It Mm -hmm. is the chemical modifications to the DNA itself or to the histones that the DNA is wrapped around. They are essentially turning these genes on or off, and it's the pattern of the on or off that will determine what cell type the cell becomes.
1: What is influencing epigenetics?
0: Ah, normal epigenetics that controls, say, cell type is going to be part of the natural programming of development, so sort of a natural evolutionary programmed thing. But you have a multitude of other factors that can potentially affect the epigenetics of the cells in your body. Environmental factors, such as smoking, that can change some of the pattern of epigenetic modifications in your DNA. Mm -hmm. As time goes on, actually, and cells develop say, damage from oxidative stress or the DNA experiences, things like double-strand breaks, you get cell repair. And it looks like the repair process itself can sometimes change the epigenetic landscape of the dna Mm. to some extent there's just sort of a random epigenetic drift too you have some enzymes that their role in the nucleus is to add methyl groups to dna and to some extent you could view them as essentially just with time getting bored and they just sort of it will extend areas of epigenetic modification okay it is a little bit of everything
1: right i know it's a big subject
0: It's it's a big topic i ramble i feel like i could just go on for hours on anything
1: It's all great, but I asked the question that was a distraction from what you were saying, so I interrupted you to give a little bit of a definition about what epigenetics are, but you were talking about that in the context of what you do, and continue, please.
0: Well, one of the things that uh, people have seen is that just the general process of aging And the way things are changing in the body in general has an epigenetic consequence. Well, you'll see two things happening with time with epigenetics. You will see a large amount of what appear to be just random epigenetic changes that happen throughout the genome. But there are also at least 400 different genes currently that we know of where the promoters of those genes experience very clear, very consistent changes over the course of a person's lifespan and so essentially what we're doing with the service that we've set up is we're going in and we're looking at just a few of these genes that are known to experience clear, consistent epigenetic changes across a person's lifespan. Mm -hmm. And we're going in and based on what we see when we measure the epigenetic state of these genes is we're able to essentially go in and make an estimate of what the person's chronological age should be as based on what we see in their DNA.
1: Mm -hmm. So you might have Been born in January 1st, 1980, and therefore you're 37. But actually, because of the way that you've lived and the methylation state that you can see through your buccal swab, you can see if somebody might actually look more like somebody who's 35 or 42. Exactly. Interesting, and what is that business called?
0: So the business is called Osiris Green Incorporated.
1: And where does that name come from?
0: So the name actually goes all the way back to when my partner and I first got this idea of pursuing lifespan research in general. My friend, by the way, Dr. Claire Ann Canfield, I've known her for 23 years now. So the name goes back to uh, right about the time that we we were coming up with this idea. She read a book by Dr. Michael West called The Immortal Cell. Mm. And Dr. Michael West is a researcher out in California and has been studying specifically stem cells and their role in aging for quite a while now. And so he wrote this book, The Immortal Cell, and there is a chapter in that book called, I believe it's The Green Face of Osiris. Mm. And that book was a large amount of the inspiration for sort of motivating us to do what we're doing. Oh, cool. Osiris, by the way, Egyptian god of resurrection, who in mythology had either a green face representing spring and growth, or by some accounts, a black face representing the fertile, rich soil of the Nile.
1: Right. A nice homage to Dr. West.
0: Yes. Yes since he sort of helped us start this whole thing at least inspiration from the book we thought it would be nice to name the company after the book
1: yeah Yeah. I asked (laughs) okay so that's what Osiris Green does and one subject that I know you're interested in that we have some overlap in is beta-hydroxybutyrate which is a ketone so let's talk a little bit about that subject and like before perhaps you can tell the listeners what are ketones Hmm. how are they formed in the body and what are the conditions in which they're formed
0: okay so probably the primary condition that ketones are formed in the body is under conditions of starvation. So your body is experiencing essentially some type of nutrient deprivation and your body will switch over to metabolizing fat. So you get free fatty acids that are released in the bloodstream. They make their way to the liver and in the liver, these fatty acids start to get broken down. It's through a process called beta oxidation. And as they're broken down, there's a chemical byproduct from the breakdown process, essentially, or it's the end result of the breakdown process. And that's called acetyl coenzyme A. And so if your body is doing a large amount of the fatty acid breakdown, your liver starts to build up a large amount of acetyl coenzyme A. So you build up acetyl coenzyme A or acetyl coa, and you have enzymes in your liver which can essentially start packaging these things together. It will package these molecules into acetoacetate, And it will also package them into beta-hydroxybutyrate.
1: Okay. And I was going to acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. Those are ketones?
0: Oh, exactly. Yes. Those are ketones.
1: All right. So through this breakdown of fatty acids, we have liver conversion of a metabolite that packages that metabolite together and produces these ketones. Yes. Okay. So from a human health perspective, why are we interested in the production of
0: these package (laughs) metabolites. Good question. So first of all, they act as an alternative fuel source. So let's say normally the cells in your body are burning a lot of glucose from blood sugar. Mm -hmm. But if, say, you're fasting or going through a period of starvation, blood sugar is going to be low. But your body can still function as long as these ketones are being produced because many cells in your body can burn these essentially as an alternative fuel. And of very strong importance, your brain is able to use ketones as an alternative fuel.
1: And why is that so important that the brain can use these as fuel?
0: So your brain is uh, doing the bulk of the glucose consumption at any given time in your body. Your brain is this extremely energy demanding tissue and so actually one of the very first things that's going to start to happen naturally as your blood sugar dips is your cognition is going to be affected. Mm -hmm. And if you have beta-hydroxybutyrate in your system, you can essentially go through a period of low blood sugar where your brain still has enough fuel to function.
1: Right. So when people transition into a ketogenic diet, they tend to feel pretty terrible for a few days before the body starts to produce ketones, which then make the brain happy again.
0: Exactly. Yeah, when you're doing this naturally, there is kind of a lag. And you go through a period of feeling kind of crappy. People generally refer to that as keto flu, sort of the transition period.
1: Right. So I think that ketones are for weight loss and weight management is probably the most popular topic where ketone has been discussed. But there's other topics, too, that have a whole different orientation around why you would take them in terms of for health. So what is a range of subjects that the subject of ketones is currently being discussed and where there's interest?
0: Mm. So there are numerous applications for taking ketones. So for one, some people report being able to essentially just think more clearly whenever the ketone level is, is fairly high in their bloodstream. Another aspect of this is actually from the blood sugar aspect of it. So let's say you can keep your blood sugar low and you can maintain high ketones enough to where you can continue to function. And having low blood sugar is potentially, you could view it as an anti-tumor state of the body. Mm -hmm. Cancer cells are always going to preferentially do glycolysis. They're always going to preferentially be taking in and breaking down sugar. The thing with cancer cells and tumor cells is that they have high rate of cellular division. So these things <laughs> are growing rapidly, they're dividing rapidly. Anytime cells are growing and dividing, they need to be taking in glucose and breaking it down for byproducts necessary for going through cellular replication. Right. Essentially, what it comes down to is that tumor cells are going to be very energy demanding cells. Mm -hmm. So if you can lower the blood sugar in your body enough to where essentially you're restricting glucose from the cancer cells, but still function by having ketones in your bloodstream, you're putting yourself in sort of this anti-cancer state.
1: Some of the theories around this that you need to remain in this state all the time or that you can enter into it periodically or for a little bit every day. What are the thoughts from what you know about how people think about that subject?
0: So from what I've read on the subject, the thought seems to be that just occasional bouts of this are enough to where you're going to experience some beneficial effects from it. So things like occasional fasting. Maybe Mm -hmm. just one good long fast, maybe once a year. Some people do intermittent fasting where Mm -hmm. instead of going on a multi-day fast, they just uh, not eat for half the day or maybe like 20 hours out of the day. Right. But it seems like it's not the type of thing that you have to be in constantly. It's the type of thing that you can just do occasionally and still reap pretty nice health benefits from.
1: Right. We have a course on fasting that will... Launch soon with Human OS, and we talked about that quite a bit. And a lot of the questions remain unknown. Can you have a truncated eating window yeah. where you only eat your calories between, let's say, noon and six? Yeah. What about a longer periodic fast? Can you take in certain fats without some of the benefits that happen during fasting? Lots of interesting questions. Lots of stuff that we have information on. A lot more coming out on it daily. Yeah. But that's another interesting aspect to it. So lowering blood glucose, starving cancer cells of their fuel source that helps them grow and divide. seems to make good sense to me. Yeah. Great. So that's one area. Why else are people interested in ketones and beta-hydroxybutyrate?
0: So it seems that Even without doing the fasting, just taking exogenous ketones, so just taking these things in as part of your diet, seems to have some health benefits. So it seems to help prevent muscle loss if you're taking in ketones. It seems to help some people with endurance. I've heard reports from some people that they say that they feel that they can just operate fine on less sleep if they are taking in ketones as part of their diet. By the way, these were hard to find previously, but currently there are supplement suppliers and shake suppliers where you can essentially buy exogenous ketones and mix them up in a shake and just drink them.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. That's an exciting advancement. Do you know how people take them with the idea of taking in exogenous ketones? as some sort of package that you include, like you said, in a shake, then you don't have to necessarily live in ketosis to get some of the benefits of having ketones in your body.
0: Exactly. I believe there are some suppliers now that are supplying these essentially as a keto ester form where it comes as a powdered shake and you just mix it with water and you can drink that throughout the day to keep your ketone body level high.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about that innovation. I have to admit, I did try some of the earlier versions of The exogenous ketones, yeah, the worst tasting stuff I've ever put in my <laughs> body.
0: Yeah, same here. The early ones tasted like you were drinking a lethal dose of salt when you were drinking them. Yeah. Some of them tasted very wretched. I have recently had some that were honestly pretty good.
1: I've written actually quite a bit about the effects of ketones, particularly beta-hydroxybutyrate, on energy-regulating pathways within the central nervous system, particularly in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. And I won't go into too much detail, but essentially, the main idea here is that well, everybody wants to lose weight is you want to lose it and you want to sustain it. But oftentimes that's not what happens. There's a certain amount of weight that's lost. And oftentimes within a year, the person who lost the weight is right back to where they were. Yeah. And there's no successful definition of what successful weight loss maintenance is. But oftentimes it is discussed as the maintenance of a 10% reduction in body weight. Yeah. That can have real significant health benefits, but people oftentimes want much more than that. What is really interesting to me is the work that's been done that looks at whether or not ketone production can affect what's called proliferative remodeling of neurons within the central nervous system. So that means that these neurons are reproducing at a faster rate. And under the conditions of diet-induced obesity, particularly in animal models within a lab, you see that the regeneration of these neural tissues reduces to a much reduced rate than somebody that has a healthy brain. And what I imagine could be happening is that you have the reason why your body will then want to stabilize at a higher set point, which might be well above. Love what you would like to have in terms of the amount of stored fat on your body is because you have some sort of imbalance between what's considered arexigenic signaling and anorexigenic signaling. An easy explanation of that is that one side of this seesaw is promoting you to take in calories and to reduce energy expenditure, and the other side is doing the exact opposite. And you might have some sort of rebalancing with the condition of obesity where the brain then becomes settled at a set point where you're holding 30, 40, 50 pounds of body fat and so what's exciting to me is some of the work looking at endogenously produced ketones through dietary manipulation and calorie reduction you see that you have greater proliferative remodeling of that energy regulating pathways which actually then might mean that you lose weight and you have a better time sustaining that weight loss and that's really exciting to me yeah Uh, yeah and that that's really what we want
0: yeah as a matter of fact i have experimented off and on over the last couple of years with going on to and, and off again from ketogenic diets And the very first time I went on to extended ketogenic diet, the pounds just shed off of me. I got down to a pretty slim body weight pretty rapidly. And you're right, it's a weight that's easy to maintain, and immediately my energy levels went up.
1: I go into ketosis a few times a year. I'm excited about these exogenous ketones. I know it's certainly exploratory and a lot more we need to know about them before you can really apply it therapeutically. But it's exciting times. I think exciting times with gained appreciation for the potential therapeutic uses and the variety of them. And what I was so interested to talk with you about today is why are these also interesting for those interested in affecting aging?
0: Yeah. So besides just the general health consequences, which are very positive from all of this, we did do some research several years ago in the lab that I was in, where we looked at giving exogenous ketones to a model organism that we were working with. So we were working with this model organism called *C. elegans. It is a little microscopic worm. It has a very short lifespan naturally, which makes it easy to work with from a life span research perspective, because you can do a lot of experiments very quickly with something that only lives, in this case, just about three weeks. And so we went in and gave exogenous ketones. We actually just, we treated these worms with beta-hydroxybutyrate and saw how that affected how they aged and how long they lived. By doing this treatment, we saw a 20% increase in the mean lifespan of these C. elegans, these microscopic worms. Mm. So... We went in and started looking at what possible cellular signaling pathways and metabolic pathways were being affected. And so we saw a couple of really nice changes going on at the molecular level inside the worms. So we saw that application of beta-hydroxybutyrates was activating two really healthy beneficial signaling pathways. One is called the FOXO pathway. Essentially, it was activating production of this FOXO transcription factor, Mm -hmm. transcription factors, by the way, things in cells that essentially when they get turned on or activated or expressed will make their way into the nucleus and on their own, then they will change gene expression. Right. They will turn on or turn off potentially an additional series of genes to change what the cell is doing overall. Right. Foxo seems to be a transcription factor that is oftentimes seen in research cases where you're looking at things that produce life span extension. Mm-hmm. It seems to promote survival and essentially resilience at a cellular level. So we saw activation of FOXO as part of this application of beta-hydroxybutyrate. We also saw activation of Nrf2, transcription factor, which is a transcription factor that appears to turn on a lot of antioxidant systems inside mm-hmm. cells. So essentially we're getting lifespan extension through both of those mechanisms as well as activation of antioxidant capacity.
1: I was at a conference a couple weeks ago in San Diego, it was a functional medicine conference. Jeffrey Bland, who's the founder of Functional Medicine, was on stage and he was presenting, and he said, so many positive things happen with the activation of NRF2. Should we just be spending more time figuring out ways to keep that active and ways to stimulate it? But certainly a lot of great things happen for the human body when that pathway is getting sufficient attention.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So you've got these two powerful systems that are dealing with oxidative stress in various ways, FOXO and NRF2, and they're both stimulated by BHB, how?
0: Well, it looks like through two different pathways that kind of overlap a little. Yeah. So for the FOXO, what we saw, it appears to be the result of inhibition of what are called histone deacetylases.
1: Okay, going back to the epigenetics, right?
0: Exactly, the epigenetics. So histone deacetylases are these enzymes that come in and they remove an acetyl group from a histone, which then changes the way DNA wraps around the histone, changing gene expression. So beta-hydroxybutyrate actually acts naturally as a histone deacetylase inhibitor. So just on its own, it is potentially changing some gene expression. Mm-hmm. And we saw specifically that it was this histone deacetylase inhibition that was at least one of the steps that produced the activation of FOXO. hmm the other method that we saw that looks like is activating these two transcription factors, it seems to be through the metabolism of beta-hydroxybutyrate. Once it's in the cells and broken down, what it breaks down into will essentially feed into what is called the tr- tricarboxylic acid cycle or the TCA cycle. Okay, And it seems to be the flow of the breakdown product of BHB through the TCA cycle that can also activate FOXO. In the process, by the way, you're feeding things into the TCA cycle, Right. you're feeding metabolites in. What you're doing in the process is you are producing NADH, which is a metabolite, essentially an electron-carrying metabolite, which can then feed electrons into what is called the electron transport chain, mm-hmm. which is the primary way that cells have producing this high-energy molecule called adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. ATP is really the primary energy molecule of cells. Right. So you're feeding in BHP. BHP is going through the TCA cycle. You're getting electrons fed into the electron transport chain. The thing is that when you're feeding electrons into the electron transport chain and you're producing ATP, one byproduct of that is always reactive oxygen species. Right. Is an inescapable consequence of the production of ATP. So you were feeding this in and what we saw was actually an increase in the production of reactive oxygen species. Okay. Most people sort of view that as a bad thing because <laughs> reactive oxygen species, very reactive molecules in general, you can just look at it as the rule of thumb being that reactive molecules in the body are not going to be good. They're going to cause unwanted chemical reactions and modifications. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what antioxidants are designed to protect against reactive oxygen species. But there is actually a good side to reactive oxygen species that people tend to overlook often is that if you get just a small increase in the production of reactive oxygen species, that will actually trigger a lot of potentially beneficial cell signaling. Mm -hmm. And it looks like it's actually this increase in reactive oxygen species, which is activating NRF2. Which makes sense because NRF2 is a transcription factory that turns on antioxidant capability. So it's like you start producing some of these reactive oxygen species, the cell says, okay, we need to boost our defensive capability. And so you get an activation of natural cellular antioxidant mechanisms.
1: And a while ago, that really struck me as the better way to address health than to take large volumes of exogenous antioxidants, which was very popular a while ago. There was a paper by Ristal somewhere in the mid-2000s which really turned things on its head. What they had is they gave people antioxidants. One group did six weeks of exercise. The other group did the same amount of exercise but with vitamin C and vitamin E. And what they found is that there was no improvement in insulin sensitivity in the group that was taking antioxidants.
0: Yeah, exactly. One of the natural consequences of exercise is your cells start producing an increased burst of reactive oxygen species. Right. So you exercise, you get this this ROS or reactive oxygen species burst. It's sort of the signaling uh, resulting from the reactive oxygen species burst that produces a lot of the beneficial effects of exercise.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the analogous to the effects of exercise, the stress that exercise provides, the positive stimulation that that provides to the body, you also have xenohormetic compounds from plants that
0: yeah exactly something
1: very similar the body perceives them as slightly stressful but in response to that it increases the production of phase one and two detoxification enzymes that then do a better job keeping you healthy than if you're trying to manage it from external sources
0: Exactly. The whole concept is usually referred to as hormesis of that you stress your body a little and that's enough to trigger your body to strengthen itself, to boost its defensive capability. So a little bit of stress is good, a lot of stress bad, but it's all about the dosage.
1: Very questionable about the influence of lots of exercise on your health versus the right amount regularly.
0: Exactly, Exercise is good for you, but you do a lot of exercise and you end up just wearing yourself down. It's all about getting everything right in terms of the dosage.
1: Dan Buettner, who wrote the book Blue Zones, which looks at the longest lived societies on earth, had a comment that none of the 30 longest lived societies on the planet exercise as we think of it in the United States. All of them, however, have regular physical activity mixed into daily life.
0: Well, you look at native populations, tribes of people in South America, and these are people who are living in very natural conditions, sort of a little bit closer to probably how humans lived in the Pleistocene. And you look at how they are in terms of their health. Oftentimes, these people are completely ripped. They will look like world-class athletes. And you go down there and you look at exactly what they're doing, and it's not like they're on any type of exercise regimen, or it's not like they're working out or anything. They just have constant Physical daily activity as part of their daily life. And it's enough to keep them in extraordinary shape.
1: It's a useful diversion. I'll do a quick summary. Beta hydroxybutyrate, which is this ketone that is produced by packaging acetyl CoA metabolites in the liver. can then be used by cells for energy especially in the brain and there's two mechanisms possibly more but two very interesting ones that seem to have a positive effect on the lifespan extending effects observed in C elegans or the roundworm a common model for aging research and one of those is the influence of beta-hydroxybutyrate as an HDAC, a histone deacetylase inhibitor. It's inhibiting that process, promoting then basically the opposite of that, which is histone acetylation. And as a result of that, you see increased levels of FOXO activity, which has broad widespread effects on oxidative stress in the body. Secondly, you have the metabolism of beta-hydroxybutyrate, which produces metabolites for the tricyclic acid cycle, and those metabolites will also then influence FOXO activity, also increase through the production of reactive oxygen species in the mitochondria. Just that little bit of stress is enough to then produce the activity of this NRF2 pathway that help the body stay strong and healthy. Yes. Both of those influences can affect lifespan. Yeah, were you able to challenge some of those ideas with knockout models, et cetera?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So the way that we were able to pry apart all these pathways. Well, it was two things, really. It was by extensive use of mutant strains of C. elegans. So C. elegans where, say, one certain gene was just genetically inactivated. Okay. So you go in, you turn off a gene that way, sort of permanently in the strain of C. elegans and you're able to see then whether or not the beta-hydroxybutyrate treatment still has the effect that you're looking at. Mm. So you go in, you turn off the HDAC enzymes, you see if you're still getting the effect with them just already turned off. Mm. By the way, also another mutant strain that we used was just a strain of C. elegans that is itself a model for dietary restriction. Okay. Yeah. It has trouble eating. C. elegans have this pharyngeal pump essentially at the back of their throat that sort of force pumps food constantly into their system. And certain mutant strains of C. elegans have a defective pharyngeal pump, Mm -hmm. so they can't eat as much. They tend to be long-lived strains. By the way, these strains of C. elegans, which were essentially calorie-restricted C. elegans, the effect of beta-hydroxybutyrate treatment had no additional lifespan increase. Interesting. Yeah, so you get sort of a lifespan increase from calorie restriction, you get a lifespan increase from beta-hydroxybutyrate. You combine the two, you don't get any additional lifespan increase. Suggestive that uh, potentially beta-hydroxybutyrate is working through the same mechanisms that calorie restriction is working through. Right. Other way that we went in and sort of modified the C. elegans to sort of start prying apart different pathways is C. elegans are really good models for doing what is called RNA interference.
1: Okay, what's that?
0: So RNA interference is this interesting technique that you can do in a research setting where essentially you can go in and by, in the case of C. elegans, literally just feeding them custom-designed double-stranded pieces of RNA, If you design the little pieces of double stranded RNA just right, the C. elegans will naturally shut down the expression of certain genes. Okay. So. Extremely easy model for doing this. Mm. We essentially went in and for certain genes that we wanted to turn off, but we didn't have easy access to a mutant strain of C. elegans, Mm. we just used this RNAi or RNA interference method to turn off gene expression that way.
1: So that's an explanation of what that technique can do. What genes were you targeting and what did you find?
0: So specifically, we did RNAi knockdown of two histone deacetylases. In C. elegans, they're called just HDA2 and HDA3. So knockdown of HDA2 and HDA3 extended lifespan in C. elegans in a similar manner as the beta-hydroxybutyrate supplementation. So once again, kind of suggestive.
1: Right. If you reduce histone deacetylase activity through this RNAi model, then you're showing another way in which reducing histone deacetylase, which then binds DNA more tightly to the histones, preventing transcription of the genes that are there. That also had a negative impact. You didn't see the extension of lifespan under that influence.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: All right. So we've got a Interesting model. It's yeah. been challenged a couple of ways. Beta hydroxy seems to be a calorie restriction mimetic. We know that calorie restriction is to this day still the most powerful influence on extending lifespan. And now we've got a substance yeah. that might be mediating at least part of it by its broad spread influence on all these other systems that matter too.
0: Exactly. Which, by the way, that brings up a tangent on my part, which I always like to point out to people. So I've been studying human aging and lifespan extension for uh, quite a long time now, and there are so many different things that people are working on, so many different treatments, and there's a lot of stuff that has a lot of potential. But when it comes right down to it, if you want to do something right now that could help the way you're aging and potentially extend your lifespan, there's nothing better that you can do other than just eat right and exercise. Mm. Just cut the number of calories that you're getting during the day and get a moderate amount of exercise and that's probably going to be just as effective if not more so than most of what the other things people are trying right now
1: I was at the Buck Institute for a conference on aging not that long ago that was sponsored by SENS Aubrey de Grey's foundation yeah that was the conclusion from some of the keynote speakers as well there's legitimate things you can do through diet and exercise that can have a meaningful impact on extending life yeah so maybe a few more years, but if you live to the maximum of your lifespan potential and you reduce all the chronic disease and the disability that comes with it, yeah, maybe through the exact application of these, you extend your maximal lifespan by a year or two. But think about all the other life you've gained Yeah, in that time frame. That's really exciting Yeah, and worth it. It's worth the, worth the effort.
0: It's honestly, what's worth it. Yeah. a small reduction on average of caloric intake and yeah. potentially has quite a big effect.
1: What's next for you? What are you looking at now?
0: So next on the horizon for us is we're trying to develop as many more tests as we can do in association with Osiris Screen for other aging-related parameters. So we have the one up and going where we're looking at epigenetics. But as I said earlier, aging is an extraordinarily complex process. There are many, many diverse things going on in the body as someone is aging. And so we're interested in seeing how many different biomarkers for some of these changes that we can actually identify in a saliva sample and measure. So we're Trying to cook up right now some other sort of male in saliva type tests that we could do mm-hmm. to look for things like uh, signs of immunosinescent. Right. So, part of the natural aging and degeneration of the immune system. We're trying to see if maybe we can identify some biomarkers for things like the accumulation of senescent cells in tissue. Senescent cells normally are cleared by the immune system, but as you age, they do tend to build up in tissue. And senescent cells naturally produce what is called the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, which is a mix of uh, different cell signaling molecules, a large number of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And so since you get this buildup of cells that are secreting very specific things, we're hoping that maybe we can actually identify some biomarkers that would let us give sort of an indirect estimate of maybe how or to what degree senescent cells are starting to build up in the body. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what we want to do is get as many tests as we can so that people who supply us with samples, we can just give them sort of like a broad dashboard type of readout of how all the different systems in their body are starting to age.
1: Yeah, it's a super important component to how I view a real solution for those who care, what they can do. And that's my audience. These are people that care about health. It's not that you have to convince them of that, but it's where do we focus our energy in the opportunity cost of time? Where can we get the best bang for the buck? What are the things that have merit? Yeah. But the idea that you can get deeper insight into what's really going on in your body provides opportunities for you to potentially address it with yep. therapies that are out there. And it's a part of the model that I've developed for human OS, which is this four stages. Why should you do something? How do you do it? Are you doing it? And is it working? And that is it working yep. idea is looking at that deeper insight. It's doing tests just like this to understand what's happening inside you with better fidelity. And that can be maybe not always, but it can be actionable or it will become actionable soon.
0: Exactly. If it's not actionable now, hopefully it is the type of thing that will be soon in the future. And it's wonderful to be healthy. It's what everyone should be striving to be. But you don't really know that you're doing anything right unless you go in and you actually measure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Actually, I guess that's kind of a rule of thumb in science. You don't know anything until you go and you take a measurement.
1: This is so interesting. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Thank you. I'd love to have you back on as you develop more tools yeah. and papers that help with our cause here that we're all on. Better insights, better information. So uh, I really appreciate
0: your time. Anytime. This has been fun. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.